you are feeling suicidal, thinking about hurting yourself, or are concerned that someone you know may be in danger of hurting himself or herself, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK, 1-800-273-8255. It is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is staffed by certified crisis response professionals. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Purple, Mint Mobile, BetterHelp, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Last week, we brought you the story of Frederick Valentich, a young pilot who vanished under mysterious circumstances off Australia's southern coast during a routine flight on a beautiful evening. His final radio transmissions indicated that he had encountered something he could not explain. Something that was outmaneuvering his Cessna 182, almost playing games with him. He asked the flight services unit out of Melbourne if there were any other known aircraft in the area, including military, and when they confirmed there was not, he informed them that he could not classify it as aircraft either. Additionally, we welcome Melbourne resident Christopher Tyler to the show to tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up in the area at the time. He'll share some insights and details that only a local could provide as we continue to dive down the rabbit hole of one of the most baffling unsolved aviation mysteries in human history. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. It seems to me that he's playing some sort of game. He's flying over me two, three times at a time, at speeds I could not identify. Frederick Valentich, 7.08 p.m., somewhere over the Bass Strait in Australia, October 21st, 1978. Join us tonight for part two of our series on the legendary disappearance of Frederick Valentich. And we're back. (laughs) Well, let's start with one of our usual warnings. This dive went deeper than we expected, so now this series is three parts instead of two. It happens. (laughs) Also, a quick correction to last week's show. I had incorrectly said that JFK Jr. went down in a Cessna 182, but that was, in fact, Mm -hmm. incorrect. He was in a much nicer high-performance aircraft, a Piper Saratoga 2 HP. Now, I did source that info from an article in our research, but I think it was an honest mistake by the author of that article, as it would seem that JFK Jr.'s first plane, his first plane, was a 1977 Cessna 182. But it was not the one that he crashed in. In fact, that first plane was for sale at least once back in 2004. It may have changed hands several other times since then. Registered in, as in Nancy, 529JK, as in John Kennedy. And in fact, Mm -hmm. was in the air just a week ago. So it's still flying. I was able to easily look that up. Uh, Thanks to listener Jerry Aldridge for bringing that to our attention. Yes, thank you, Jerry. And, uh, you know, another thing that kind of strikes me strange is that uh, unlike cars, if you're a pilot just starting out and and maybe you're just learning to fly or you pull together probably with some buddies or unless you're rich and you bought an airplane, there's not a lot of choices. Yeah, that's true. Of models and brands of airplanes. Yeah. Piper, Beechcraft, Cessna, your bigger brands, and those are mostly the ones you hear about concerning private aviation. Yeah, and I think there's other ones that maybe you don't hear of if you're not a pilot or in those circles. I know that my friend Mm -hmm. who had one, his was a Trinidad Aerospatiale, I think, uh, which was a Mm. company, a French company. And I know that it was a nicer aircraft for a private plane, the one that we took to 
get the burger. Speaking of which, one of our listeners, a former pilot, Rusty Barnett, said that flying out for a great airport cafe is often called going for a $100 hamburger. So I guess that's a tradition. (laughs) But it plays right into what we were always saying about the idea that maybe he was just flying to fly. You don't always, you you have a plane, you can get to the plane, you can afford to take it up. You don't necessarily call ahead and arrange the lobster or you say, oh, I'm going to go get some passengers, whatever. You're just looking for any excuse to get in the air, which I think is kind of a possibility there. No, in his position, too, what he needs is experience and air flying time under his belt. That's right. The more, the better. So any excuse to get that benefits him greatly because he needs to pass his commercial pilot's license. So that's his major goal here. Well, folks, we're going to dive right in tonight, but not before we say hello to Beth and Liam. Um, I guess Beth ordered a hoodie for Liam to the UK that the U.S. Postal Service took over a month to deliver. So she checked and she's mm. like, where is this? And our folks were trying to figure out where it went and they were sort of tracking it, but it was getting stuck in different places. So we sent a second one. And it turns out that by the time the second one arrived, or pretty close to it, the first one had arrived too. And she actually went out of her way to contact us and say, hey, we have two hoodies now. What can I do to make this right? (laughs) Wear them both at the same time. That's one (laughs) over the other. Be extra warm. That's what I say you can do to honor the show. (laughs) You know, there's a kind of honesty you don't see every day. So that's very pleasant to hear. Uh, But we're so glad both made it to you guys. And Liam, with any luck, that hoodie will keep you warm while you're outside working in the rain and snow there, which Beth says is a requirement of your current gig. Yeah, our hoodies are nice, but I think you're still going to need a few layers under there. (laughs) And maybe one over the top because it's rainy there, I hear. And uh, it's not waterproof. It's not waterproof. It's not waterproof. (laughs) Anyway, Liam, thanks so much for being such a loyal listener. And thank you, Beth, for your astonishing honesty. Indeed. All right. Well, it's time to get down to the nuts and bolts of this episode here. And we have a special guest to give us a lot of great local insight, don't we, Scott? Yeah, we got lucky with this one. And, uh, you know, tonight's show, we're going to cover a little bit more of the details that uh, we didn't get to in part one. And then we're going to really get down the rabbit hole with possible explanations and other sightings, because there's a lot more strangeness to the story than it seems like on the surface. And one of the things that we did want to do if we had the opportunity was talk to a local person. And we got lucky. It's a nice thing about Astonishing Legends having a a global reach is that people reach out to us (laughs) from time to time. And uh, this gentleman actually emailed us, well, a while ago, (laughs) as you'll hear. It's kind (laughs) of embarrassing. Sarah, go ahead and roll the top of our interview with Chris Tyler. Chris, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about Frederick Valintich. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. I think we should start out by telling everyone that you first emailed us about this topic over three years ago. And we, mm. of course, didn't write back at all. And then I wrote you back and said, hey, can you talk about this in the next day? <laughs> yeah, immediately. Now. <laughs> Drop everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way we roll. It's, but that's very current for us. And you agreed. So thank you very much. I guess uh, before we get into this story, you know, we've already done part one of this series, and it's exciting to have you here for part two as a local and somebody that used to have a podcast as well, I understand. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Look, I have a psychology background. I currently work for a university designing courses. Um, I have a research background. I've always been fascinated by UFOs and the phenomena of UFOs, and I was really into it when I was younger. Like when I was like between, I think, 12 to 22 would have been my butter zone for UFO fanaticism. But it's kind of cooled over the years and sort of gone up and down in in waves. I think of myself now as a skeptic, 
but a really interested skeptic. And I often think that I'm too much of a believer for skeptics and too much of a skeptic for believers. Right. So I fall into that zone <laughs> where nobody likes me, basically. <laughs> like I, I used to be a member of Vufors, but I sort of dropped out because they're, they're lovely people, but they're not necessarily as skeptical as I am. It's just a, a topic, particularly the Volantich disappearance. I've always thought this was one of the top five most interesting UFO cases possibly in the world. And I think it's definitely one of the top five of Australia. Yeah, we have a few, but this is this is up there. What do you consider some of the other top UFO cases for Australia? So the top five for me, the Westall incident, which if you're not familiar with it, is the, the incident where you have over 200 uh, witnesses witnessing the landing of a UFO in a school. Westall's actually not too far from me. I live in Glen Waverley. It's, uh, it's close to Dandenong. Then you have the Kelly Cahill abduction, which actually occurred down the road from me. And then the Knowles family min-min encounter on the Nullable Plain. Wow. And Westall, I think I'm in a Facebook group with a bunch of people for that, which I, of course, never posted. I'm mm. surprised they let me in there. But, like, it's really fascinating. They're still in there talking about that. It's, it's like they're all friends. A lot of people in there are still oh, yeah. talking. So, and I actually kind of want to cover that. There's a thing with school sightings. And we've touched on it before. We've talked about the aerial sighting in, uh, I think, Zimbabwe. Forest? Yeah, I, it's, that sounds correct. It's yeah. somewhere in Africa, but also a school sighting. West Haven? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, so we have. A, I have an interest in that as well. What was the Kelly case you talked about? I'm not familiar with that one. Kelly Cahill was a woman who was driving back from a party, I think, in 1989 with her partner, and she was in near Fertree Gully. I'm probably getting this all wrong because it's not. I didn't actually write this in my notes. Broad strokes, broad strokes. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. So she she claims that she was. So they saw a light on the road, and it continuously came and went, and then eventually just stopped in front of them. And she claims she was abducted. She doesn't really have a lot of memory of what happened, but then she was. Um, you know, she had nightmares and all this sort of stuff afterwards. Very common sort of post abduction sort of story. But she never changed the story. She was very, like she had a, a witness as well. There were other people who witnessed the same UFO who were independent of her and saw, this, saw the UFO along this road at the same time. Oh, wow. She wrote a book, I believe, which was called Close Encounter, which is, is now something that's hard to get, but I remember owning it uh -huh. in the early 90s. And it's referenced uh, in an X-Files episode. Oh, cool. One of the newer ep episodes, I believe. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. And so, but, but that took place near you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, let's talk about Valentich. Sure. We talked about this a little bit off the air, but I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that that's how a local pronounces it because we looked and looked and looked and that's what we went with or tried to go with. It was hard to uh, – we're stumbling every time we say Valentich, Melbourne, Moorabbin. Moorabbin, correct. Okay, Perfect. that's great for that's, the airport. Yeah. Okay. And uh, Flinders and King Island, those all seem pretty easy to say, right? Yep. <laughs> okay. But um, let's talk a little bit about what, you know, how, how you feel about this case and what you think uh, you were, I think you were going to give us a little bit of local color from the time period in Australia and try to give our listeners an idea of what it was like there when this happened. The thing I think about when I think about late 70s Australia is that we're very much just a large country town in a lot of ways. Um, we're, there's a lot of weird contradictions about Australia. Um, we're a multicultural melting pot which makes us on a short list of uh, multicultural cities, and yet we're sort of a relative backwater. We're a first world country with a population of only 14 million in 1978. So it's oh, really, wow. really, you know, that, that's the entire country. Petrol's cheap, beer's plentiful, casual racism is the norm, 
Greece is playing in cinemas. We're yet <laughs> to become like in the eighties and nineties, we start to become like a, a powerhouse of technology and innovation and things like that. We're just not that in the seventies. We've just come from a very progressive government into a very conservative government, and we had a huge political fallout there. I don't know, you probably have no idea about this thing called the dismissal where the Queen basically told the Governor General to dismiss the Prime Minister of Australia because he wasn't doing a good job. And it was oh. a massive controversy. Wow. That was only a year before. Okay. We've only had colour television for three years in 1978. <laughs> like, we've only got five channels of television for the whole country. And if you're in a country area, it's only two. Oh my gosh. We're kind of sleepy. You know, we, we don't have a lot going on. Like there is a lot going on, but we it's you know if you if you're an alien coming to, the, to Australia and just looking down, you'd be like not much is happening. Um, <laughs> Victoria is particularly sleepy. Victoria was a particularly we're now known as a very cosmopolitan, more cultured perhaps than the rest of Australia. We're now known as kind of a a cultural hub. But in the 70s, we were just kind of doing our thing. Like, you know, we had, we'd had we spawned ACDC. We were really proud of that. Yeah. <laughs> we're very much a sporting nation. The cultural zeitgeist was drinking beer, going to sporting events, and just buying big cars, which is the other thing we loved. Yeah. It wasn't exactly a town where lots of stuff happened. Yeah. But, of course, just because a place is quiet doesn't mean that nothing ever happens here. And as we touched on prior to 1978, the most famous UFO case we'd had would have been Westall, and that's 1966. By the way, just briefly, Westall is, that was a couple hundred witnesses, right, that saw? 200 witnesses. Yeah, 200 witnesses that saw whatever they saw that day. 10th of April, around 11 a.m., teachers and students came out and saw a UFO land in a field. Now, the accounts vary as to whether it actually landed or it just hovered over this field. But it was there for around 20 minutes. Students all independently identified this thing. They had got lots and lots of drawings of what this thing looked like. Then after 20 minutes, it just sort of shot off over towards Clayton, um, which is sort of to the east. I don't know why you'd want to go to Clayton, but that's where they went. Where is Westall? I can't remember. Where is that? So it's about 25 k's out of Melbourne proper. Okay. So between the Kelly, who got abducted up the road from you, Westall's mm. 25 kilometers, and then we're uh, right on top of the Valentich situation as well. So it's feasible that if any of these phenomena are, you know, verifiable as, as, as real phenomena, it's feasible that they could be connected somehow. It's not impossible. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to uh, say here, I, I actually I may have misspoken earlier. Uh, I was trying to mention the Broadhaven UFO mm. sightings in Pembrokeshire. Ah. School. Yep. Uh, that's 1977. That's Welsh. That's in Wales yes, or whatever. We're just talking about school sightings, general yeah. school sightings, where there's a, a, a large group of children and adults who who all witness this as well. But you had mentioned the mood and the you know what was going on, mm. and what we found in different areas, uh, no matter where, where you know continent we're talking about, what country or or region, areas with some activity kind of go up and down. So. Was there a lot of general paranormal activity going on, would you say, during that time? Or was it was that kind of sleepy as well? Yeah, in the late 60s and in the, in the 70s. Look, I don't know about general paranormal activity, but I will say that in the late 70s, right up to the mid-80s, UFOs in Australia were hot. They were like the thing. Hmm. And you've got to remember in 1978, in Australia, Close Encounters of the Third Kind had just come out. 
You had Chariots of the Gods that had just come out. We'd got In Search Of in Australia on TV with the ancient astronauts and stuff like that. So it's not a stretch to say that there was like a, it was part of the zeitgeist. It was part of the world we were living in. It was something that, you know, I remember going to the library as a kid and there would be like a huge shelf of UFO books. My mother had books on UFOs. She is not a believer in any way, shape or form. She's a very Christian lady. But she had UFO books. She claimed to have seen a UFO. My grandfather claimed to have seen a UFO in the late 60s. So, you know, it was a thing. There were definitely people interested in it, and there were definitely sightings in Australia and Melbourne. Yeah, I would say the same uh, for the United States around that time, too. It was just kind mm. of a, a cultural world phenomenon, I think, where people were mm. paying attention. Valentich, uh, it's said, was a, a fan of the Von Daniken books. Uh, so he was like the rest of us collecting these books and, and yeah, you'd see them everywhere. People would have them in their homes, even though they didn't believe in the phenomenon per se, it was just a cultural fascination at the time uh, for uh, a lot of the English speaking world, I would say at least. Yeah. This is something that like people throw up a lot about Volantich where it's like, well, he was a believer in UFOs. He claimed to have seen, his mother claimed to have seen a UFO. He was interested in them. He'd mentioned to his girlfriend, Rhonda, at the time, when, but before, they, when they're up in the Dandenongs, that he would uh, be happy to be taken by a UFO if it came, but he wouldn't leave her behind. And, yes. And things like that. He'd seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind and really enjoyed it. People say, oh, well, therefore, he was a UFO nut, therefore, he wanted to see UFOs. I don't see that. I think that's just part of the landscape that he was living in. I think right. that was just, you know, it wasn't unusual for sober, intelligent people who were diligent at their jobs, they did nothing out of the ordinary to be very interested in this phenomena. So I don't see it as a, uh, a deal breaker. I don't see it as, a, oh, well, he must have faked this because he wanted to see a UFO. Right. I see it as, well, that's just how things were. And plus, he's, he's a pilot. He's in the sky. It's like he's even closer mm. to the idea of it just by the nature of what he wants to be, which is interesting, too as opposed to folks who are fascinated, but, you know, always earthbound. So I think that's interesting. Hmm. So, yeah, and I would agree with you. I would say the cultural zeitgeist, and I haven't been able to use the word zeitgeist on our show in a long time, so thanks for bringing that back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, you're welcome. Providing it's an old favorite. Because we've all been waiting for it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, I mean, that feeling was the same. I remember at that age, I was 9, 10 years old when this happened. And um, But I remember, you know, when Star Wars came out and Close Encounters and all of that stuff. And and there mm -hmm. was an interest in them, but there was not, for me either, an obsession by any stretch of the imagination. And and it seemed like a lot of the character witnesses that they interviewed for the report said, well, yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, some people said, no, he never even brought it up, never brought it up. Other people said, well, he did, but I don't think it was unusual. I think that once again, that's normal. The people who I, I'm friends with, who I just don't talk about UFOs with. Yeah. And they probably don't really know that I'm interested in them. Right. And I think that's perfectly not. I think it, it, that demonstrates like a passing interest. Like if it was a monomania or something or he was absolutely fixated on them, he would talk about them all the time to everyone. Right. And he, he did not do that. everybody. My name is Adam from Graveyard Tales, and when Matt and I aren't neck deep in weirdness, I'm listening to Scott and Forrest. Well, actually, that keeps me neck deep in weirdness, but whatever. Let's get back to the show. You know, sometimes when we do these raw interviews, I will send them out for that Autobot transcription because mm. it's really cheap. Mm -hmm. It's like 25 cents a minute, and this computer <laughs> mm -hmm. tries to figure out what was said. Later, we do real human transcriptions for the show's which we're doing for all our current shows now and, and doing some for the older shows 
it's a long story. But anyway, the point is <laughs> the recent episodes are all transcribed by humans. But when we do an interview and we need to integrate it into our production workflow, it's like a lot of times mm -hmm. we'll just like, I'm going to send this out, get the robot to do it, send it back so we can kind of figure out how to piece everything together. And a lot of times it makes a ton of mistakes. It can't tell who's speaking. It makes up words. Uh, and some of the mistakes are pretty hilarious. But the one thing here was that it thought that Chris Tyler had said the word monomania. And it even yeah. capitalized it. And I was like, oh, that's got to be, that's like monomena. It looks like monomena when you look at it and type here <laughs> with an extra I in it, monomania. But anyway, I didn't think it was a real word. I hadn't heard it before. Maybe it's a common word mm. in Australia. I actually had to look this up for us. And it, yes. it perfectly describes what he's talking about because he was saying that Frederick didn't have monomania regarding UFOs. So what monomania is, and it doesn't need to be mm -hmm. capitalized. I don't know why. The AI capitalized it. And it's a robot. Yeah. Pathological obsession with one idea or subject. Oh. Intent concentration on or exaggerated enthusiasm for a single subject or idea. Huh. Not only did he use that word perfectly, which I was not familiar <laughs> with, but the robot figured it out too. And the only mistake it made was capitalizing it. Right. But this is a valid point. Frederick did not seem to have monomania. Well, hence the mono part of that yeah. word. I yes. did have mono in high school. I did get that. <laughs> uh, you know, just uh, all I can Air say is a spring break, do not share the hurricane cups because my whole senior class got it. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that, it's also us, uh, you know, picking out the mono, the easiest part of that. And, and uh, well, okay, no, of course that makes sense. Yeah. I am El Nino, which is Spanish for the Nino. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, cut that out. No, that was a uh, it's Chris Farley. That at all. <laughs> you don't remember his character, El Nino? And no. it uh, that was back in the uh, early two thousands, I believe. Oh. And of course, people hear the term, but they don't know the Spanish, which is the child, the child, yes. the male child. Mm. But getting back to Frederick, yeah, it, it describes that perfectly, I think, in that he did not have that or never display that. Nobody ever said that he was fixated on UFOs and he just wanted to climb aboard one and get abducted or at least tell people about some wild, crazy experience he had. He mentioned it, and as we just heard, it was about the same level of interest as most of us during that time frame. Yeah, and I looked this up. This is an important thing to consider. Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out in March of 1978 in Australia, in February in the US, yeah. but in March in Australia. That was seven months before this. And at the end of the movie, you go and get on a UFO. A lot of people were talking <laughs> about that. Would you get on a UFO? I mean, that movie yeah. was a worldwide hit. So yeah, it's not fair to say, oh, well, he said that. I mean, because, you know, all due respect to the inspectors who did the report for the accident right. report, probably not a bunch of close encounters watching guys, this team of accident investigators. No, but I have a lot of respect for their inclusiveness of ideas and their openness a little bit as much as they can be. But starting off, that was the mood. And that's why it was great to hear Chris describe the mood in the uh, late 70s in uh, Melbourne, Melbourne, and Southern Australia and all of Australia. And also it matches up a lot what's going on in my neck of the woods where I was growing up, where you were growing up, all the United States, Canada, Mexico, pretty much everywhere. I don't know why I listed those. Yes, I'm talking about the world. People, well, you know what? There's probably well, parts of the Mexico, world where, I mean, well, for Americans, that's the whole world. That's us, right? Well, it's no, us you and know, then those guys above us and the guys below. <laughs> I will say one thing. Yes, as dopey Americans, we tend not to consider other places outside our, our own state even. Yeah. And so what we have to realize is that South America, Central America, Mexico, 
they're really more accepting of UFOs and yes, that's the, true. the research and the study. Argentina, especially. Yeah. Well, yeah. they get a lot of it. That's the thing yeah. is that after a certain point, it's like you get it so much in the night sky. I was watching the short-lived series, uh, Sean Ryder on UFOs, and he used to be with the Happy Mondays. Yeah. Did you know that? He was yeah. uh, the lead guy, I believe, uh, one of the lead guys. Very interested in UFOs because he saw one as a youngster himself. So he goes down to South America, and it is one of those things where it's, you know, they have a night scope pointed at the sky. You'll see some weird movements that aren't like meteors or meteorites because they go off at slight angles. Yeah. But they're tiny dots. And so that's another thing we're going to bring up here when we're talking about celestial navigation and the weather conditions and could it have been mistaken, could uh, Fred have mistaken these lights for planets or stars or meteors or whatever and how likely that is. But there's a lot of activity going on. And so, you know, it's all over and, and you have more concentrated areas, certainly. But I remember growing up and being not too far from Canada that, yeah, it's not like it stops at the border. <laughs> it's not like they stop having interest in it, but their attitudes are slightly different. Right. And I think that's what was great to hear Chris talk about is the attitude and uh, the acceptance levels that people didn't really, you know, they weren't really dismissive of it and they weren't really freakishly obsessed about it, but they're more open to it. And it's like they're more open to talking about it. If you bring it up, you're not immediately labeled a nutcase. Yeah, I agree. Well, here's something else I wanted to touch on before we get into our next segment with Chris. And we did talk about this a little bit in part one, but I just wanted to reiterate that the weather that day was really good. And I wanted to read from uh, page 102 of the report, the government report from Australia, which I thought this was interesting just to get these details. Not going to read it all, but just to get an idea of the conditions Frederick Valentich was flying in when he went up that night. Uh, this is from the Bureau of Meteorology Regional Office in Victoria. The heading over that is the Department of Science and the Environment. Well, at the top of this, it says, Missing Aircraft VHDSJ. Bass Strait, 10-21-78. And I'm reading that the right way instead of the way the Australians write it, which is backwards where they put the day first. Oh, dear. On the evening of, here, I'll do it just as it's written. On the All evening right. of 21-10-78, a broad ridge of weak gradient extended westward from eastern Bass Strait through southeast Victoria to Adelaide. Conditions were perfect for night flying over Victoria with scattered clouds at five to 7,000 feet, scattered cirrus at 30,000 feet. Visibility was excellent at about 30 kilometers and more. Hmm. Temperatures at 0800 Zulu ranged from 25 to 27 degrees Celsius north of the ranges to 21 south of ranges to 17 Celsius at Cape Otway and Wilson's Promontory, and 15 degrees Celsius to 13 degrees Celsius at King and Flinders Islands, King Island being his destination. So we're essentially looking at the 60s here. This very nice weather. Yeah. The lower seabird temperatures indicate a shallow surface inversion below 1,000 feet. This probably accounted for some haziness about Cape Otway. Surface winds were very light, being less than 10 knots, throughout Victoria, with slight sea breezes about the coastal fringe. State of sea reported from Cape Otway and Wilson's Promontory was smooth seas with low swell from the southwest. The oil platform at Kingfish A reported a calm to rippled sea with a three-foot southwesterly swell. Barometer mm -hmm. readings ranged from 1,022 millibars at King South to 1,023 millibars at Flinders Island and Melbourne, 1,024 millibars at Gabo Island and Wagga to 1,021 millibars at Mildura, and 1,022 at Mount 
Gambier. So you can see the weather is fairly consistent. The barometric pressure is fairly consistent. There's uh, more mention of the winds, which, you know, change mm -hmm. at certain altitudes, but it's all very mild conditions. And the, the crux of this is, you know what? It was a good time for flying. It was a good weather for Perfect flying. Perfect flying weather, yeah. So we just wanted to reiterate that for people that are thinking about the various reasons that he might have gone down, things that could have contributed to an accident if it wasn't the craft that he was reporting. Well, in the next section here, we wanted to talk a little bit about this wreckage that supposedly was sighted and some part of the search. Now, we already mentioned early on in part one that there was lost time in the search. There was one point at which a, an Orion aircraft spent a long time trying to direct a surface vessel to an oil slick. And there was another time when an aircraft sighted some wreckage but couldn't get a fix and had to fly up to a higher altitude to get a fix. And when it did, it lost sight of whatever it thought. And it wasn't sure that it was wreckage. That's just what they thought. And then they never could find it again. That one sighting for me is the biggest question mark in all of the search. What did they see? But by the same mm -hmm. token, the implication from the report and all the professionals that were talked to was that even if you lost track of that, oil would have been seen. An oil slick would have been seen wherever the aircraft went down, if it went down in water. Mm -hmm. There's no escaping that. And they did find the one oil slick, but as we said in part one, and we'll touch on again tonight, it was analyzed and found to be most likely marine oil. Yeah, not aviation. Not right. aviation oil, and also it was huge. It was a huge amount. It was more yeah, than would yeah. come out of a Cessna. But one of the things that stuck in my mind was that filmmaker who we talked about last week who came forward to Frederick's dad, Guido Valentich, and said, hey, I found the aircraft. I found three aircraft a couple miles apart, and they're shaped in a V, and this one is, is your son's airplane, and the fuselage is a little twisted, but I can bring it up. I'm just I'm trying to make a documentary. If you'll give me $10,000, I'll show you photos, mm. which Greedo got understandably upset about. I was curious because the report doesn't really indicate where that went from there, so I, of course, wanted to ask Chris about it, him being a local, and see if he remembered it, even though he was two years old. <laughs> All right, then here's another, now here's another question that popped into my head. This Cameron guy, the filmmaker who called Guido and said, I found three planes, give me 10 grand, I'll show oh. you, I saw his plane, we'll pull it up. That's in yeah. the report, but it doesn't follow up at all. It just says that it was, there was no. this thing, there's the money, Guido seemed to be upset about it, they didn't follow through with it. He was. He called the Department of Transport and said, I'm, I'm concerned, I don't, this is, this is not funny for me, right. this is my son. That begs my next question. What happened with that? Did they ever find nothing? No aircraft. The guy nothing. never said where they were or what was there. No. Like after no. he didn't get the money, a few years later he didn't, or he didn't get someone else to fund his film. Nothing happened, and no one knows where the aircraft were that he was talking about, if they even existed. No, if they even existed, and I, yeah, it doesn't seem. I've never seen a follow up. I've never heard anything about it. Yeah, I've never heard of this guy since. Yeah. And no other uh, local shows or anyone that you know has uh, done any side scanning sonar or any kind of like in search of like dropping something down and mapping the Bass Strait and looking for the aircraft off Cape Otway or anything like that. No one has done that kind of imaging? Not specifically that I know of to look for the Volantage plane. No. no. There's probably been, I mean, that it's a busy trafficked area. Sure. And I would be surprised if there hadn't been sonar or radar sent down to see what's down there yeah. just not, not you just idle curiosity because there are other things have gone other planes have gone down in the same area or same vicinity yeah that was a yeah. question there's other planes and ships there's i mean there's obviously cables probably between the mainland and tasmania i would imagine absolutely yeah yeah well we run our internet uh from tasmania oh it, it goes from tasmania to you 
goes from (laughs) is that where that yeah (laughs) well and that's the question though i mean it occurs to me now that i said it kind of flippantly in part one that there weren't any other known cessnas but i actually didn't look that up is do you know are there other private craft private craft no commercial craft certainly yeah but not uh private craft not 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 that i know of okay but ships go down yeah it's a well-trafficked area and it's known as a treacherous piece of sea right it's in the westerlies right the really bad really intense wind really intense wind Yeah. yeah yeah But it was not the day he flew. It was a beautiful, calm day. Calm, clear, yeah. beautiful. Perfect weather for flying. Everybody agreed it was perfect weather for flying. So, Scott, what's your take on this documentary filmmaker? Because as we know, having uh, trudged around in that world a little bit, a lot of projects usually, well, most projects don't get off the ground. And they're sometimes very dedicated and genuine people behind them. Sometimes there's people that, you know, they're, they're trying to work an angle, let's say. Yeah, this is a loose end that bugs me, frankly. And if we had come to this story a little bit sooner than just a few weeks ago, I would want to really follow up on this. I would want to try to track this guy down or if he had kids or, you know, whoever yeah. might still be around and figure out what was going on here. Because I would be curious to know. It's like, oh, yeah, he's a con artist. This is all he, you know, right, he actually right. wound up in jail for doing X, Y, and Z. Or it's like, no, he actually went on to make a documentary in New Zealand that mm-hmm. was really mm-hmm. well received. And it's like, because I want to know whether or not to believe if that guy did find something. Here's the thing about this and something that I think you and I have both learned is that sometimes people with bad morals and ethics do find stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's not <laughs> contingent on uh, so, their, their character. Yeah, yeah, no, just because they're contributing to a solution to the mystery doesn't mean they're a Disney character that's going to be nice and sweet and help you out. <laughs> Sometimes it's a jerk or some. I mean, you know, yeah. look at what happened to Indiana Jones when he's like, yeah, throw me the idol, you know, so. <laughs> In this case, I just want to know what he found. Did he actually find some or was he fully Anything. making it up? I mean, and that's the thing. So we've, we've looked at... Uh, uh, scenarios, let's say, uh, like the alien autopsy film, mm-hmm. where there's uh, competing motivations for different reasons. And of course, like I said, a lot of times uh, people are wanting to get a project done and they'll come at it with a, a bit of a crazy angle, or this person may have genuinely had a lead on something. And if that's the case, I want to know what that is. Yeah. Well, the, and then the other thing here is that we were talking about what's the travel like in the Bass Strait, extending uh, eastward to the the Tasman Sea. And what we've learned is that it's very well-traveled, but it can be treacherous. It can be extremely treacherous, and especially the part that you're talking about on the eastern end of it. And we're going to be talking about that ourselves here a little bit more tonight. Uh, One of my favorite books that I've ever read actually takes place in the eastern part of the Bass Strait. But before we get into that, one thing that I did want to come back to a little bit was that oil slick analysis. And like mm-hmm. I said, I know we said it in part one, and I apologize if I'm being a little redundant. We just want to make the facts crystal clear. I think that's perfectly fine because I don't listen to us all that carefully either. So <laughs> I, I really don't expect anybody else to. Oh, I'm doing stuff, you know, Yeah. if I have to have to listen to the show. So there are things that keep coming up that I think get knocked down pretty successfully as far as proposed reasons that uh, maybe make more sense, but there are also a lot of speculations that have been going on since the case happened in 79. So I think there are some good arguments against those and and some ones that maybe leave the door open for some theories. But in this case, yeah, we want to revisit these things so we can be really 
clinical about this, but also entertaining. Looking at this and looking again at the report, in page 161 of the report, there is a letter from the Department of Defense, the Materials Research Laboratories, which summarizes what they found with the oil. And again, I mentioned this before, but I'm just going to restate it again right here. Both samples yielded very small quantities of hydrocarbon oil. However, the analyses indicated that these were more consistent with bunkering fuel oil than with either gasoline or lubricating oil. The peaks observed fell into a range somewhat between these two materials and hence could not be attributed to either. And so what happens here is that Investigator Smith includes in the file, he's one of the five investigators, his initials are I.S. Smith, which is great. So it's mm-hmm. is Smith. <laughs> but, <laughs> but his letter here, uh, which he's responding to someone named Mr. Keenum, I can't remember what precipitated this letter, but, but it sums it up very concisely. The right. Materials Research Laboratories analyzed a water oil sample obtained from Bass Strait at the request of the Department of Transport, and they have referred your letter to this office. It was determined that the oil contained in the water sample was fuel oil and not of the type used in the missing aircraft. So mm-hmm. that's the official investigative conclusion on that. The other thing I wanted to talk about was this thing that happened on November 21st in 1978. This, I was surprised Mm -hmm. to see this in the report. There's not a whole lot of follow-up on it. And this seems like maybe the investigators stumbled across this because of a newspaper article, and then they made their notes on it. Um, And so this is interesting. So the article is pretty short, and it comes from the, The Sun, this is from uh, 22-11-78, or for uh, Americans, 11-22-78. That's when this article was printed. It says, plane wreck scene. A pilot yesterday reported he had seen wreckage of a plane in Bass Strait near where Melbourne pilot Frederick Valentich vanished. The transportation department said the pilot, flying a Cessna 337 from Melbourne to King Island, circled over the area at 12.31 p.m. but could not see wreckage a second time. The department said any wreckage at the spot, 48 miles north of King Island, would be in 30 fathoms or 60 meters of water. That's 200 feet, which is the rough average depth of the Bass Strait. Mm -hmm. Seas were rough and a gale warning was out. The department said planes and ships using the area had been alerted, but no search was planned yet. Valentich, 20, in a single-engine Cessna 182, vanished on a flight from Melbourne to King Island on October 21st. Minutes before his radio went silent, Valentich told air controllers that a large object was hovering above him, and it was not an aircraft. So that's the article, which the investigators, I, I can't tell if they actually talked to this gentleman. I think they did, but they've got some notes here, and they're handwritten, so you have to forgive me for a second, whichever investigator took these notes of these five guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and it says here, King Island, Jacka Track, whatever that means, saw shape of fuel sludge, orbited, but couldn't see it again. Water rough, white caps. Pilot didn't say anything. Yeah, see, they did talk to him, or they investigated this a little bit. Pilot didn't say anything until he was back at King Island. If it had been important, suggests he would have reported immediately. So the investigator's thinking whatever he thought he saw obviously wasn't that big a deal because he flew all the way mm. to King Island before he said anything. Mm-hmm. And then uh, later on, it says here, the water was 180 to 190 feet deep there briefed other aircraft to maintain lookout, would have required clear, calm water to see at that depth. All right, this is what intrigued me about this, Forrest. Yeah. This pilot saw something. It's rough seas. There's a gale warning out, and he thinks he's seeing an airplane 200 feet down in the Bass Strait. Now, Mm. I haven't been to the Bass Strait. I don't (laughs) think the water's that clear, crystal clear. I mean, this is part of the ocean. So... 
I don't. Uh, I think I know where you're going. To me, if this guy saw something, I don't think it would have been on the bottom. And I have to wonder, given all the information that we've uncovered uh, with regard to this report and studying these events, if he saw a USO, an unidentified submerged object, kind of like what yeah. uh, Commander Fravor's people saw in that incident. <laughs> Pop culture rock star now, yeah. Commander David Fravor, who saw the, uh, the uh, very large, uh, yeah, but this thing, yeah, this thing, thing was not submerged, the but yeah, was, was huge, like a, yeah. and the water was boiling. It's, you know, very roiling. Yes. It's the rapid boiling, rough yes. boiling. Yeah. Uh, just the sea bubbling above it as if it had been boiling. That's how he described it. But this thing was massive. I think he said the size of a, a, a commercial jetliner end to end. Yeah. It was a lot larger than the Tic Tac object from my memory here, my poor shoddy memory. But that's what he saw underneath the water, which shouldn't have been there. And also it was uh, very light colored, not the usual color of military submersible vehicles. So I do wonder myself, I'm right there with you, my friend, in that uh, he could have seen something else that was not at the bottom. That also does not strike me as very possible. Yeah. Again, I have not not done a lot of search and rescue observations from a plane, but I have flown over depths about that in uh, ocean water. And I would agree, it has to be pretty clear, pretty calm to see any depth, from my experience anyway. And if there's a little bit of chop, you know, depending on the region there, you're not going to see to the bottom. So it's very odd. But I do think this pilot did see something. Yeah, because you're you're used to looking at white caps. You know what they look like. You're flying over them all the time, especially in the Bass Strait. So yeah. it's hard for me to imagine that he would have confused that for something else. I guess it's possible. But again, whatever he saw, he also didn't feel... This is the interesting thing too, Forrest. Mm -hmm. Work with me here. Mm. He flew to King Island before he reported it, yeah. which is a possible suggestion of paranormal apathy. Oh, wow. I mean, I'm turning this thing on its ear, on its <laughs> ear but let's just say yeah. he was flying over there. He knew Valentich had disappeared there. He sees something crazy. It's a USO. And mm -hmm. rather than taking the appropriate steps, he goes on about his way, which the flight to King Island is like 30 or 40 minutes or something. Yeah. He just flies out. And then when he lands, he's like, oh, yeah, I saw a sunken plane. It's like, oh, I, I saw a shadow man at the end of my bed and I went back to sleep. Okay, cool. Whatever you say, dude. <laughs> but the thing is, that kind it, of thing, right. that's something that we would bump on because of our experience over the past several years of researching yeah. this kind of stuff. But these uh, buttoned up, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't be this way. Those guys are just going to yeah. be like, all right, he saw something. We can't, he couldn't find it and whatever. We've got a report of it. But they're not going to make the connections we're making about the possibilities associated with whatever that pilot saw. Because this no. was a long time also after the accident. There's not an implication that Valentich's plane would have been floating all this time either. It would have been long sure, sunk sure. by now. I would also say the matter-of-fact attitude towards a lot of people who uh, engage in these activities that could be dangerous, but you have to be very buttoned up to do them, is that this can wait. If he saw a boat on fire, yeah, he'd radio that in immediately. But this was some wreckage. He did remember it. But I, yeah, I wonder if it's one of those things where that area uh, didn't make an impression on him. It's like you see something and it's like, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, it should be noted, but also not that big of a deal in the moment. Right. Which goes to your apathy theory. Yeah, it's interesting. Hello everyone, I'm Ron and this is Astonishing Legends. 
Let's get back to the show. I don't know if you guys remember, but towards the end of part one, we mentioned a bit of wreckage that had been found. And I want to be more specific about that. This uh, turned up five years after the accident, and it was buried in the report, and no one knew about this for a long, long time. But the information- Until 2012, right? Yeah, until 2012. The information came out that a cowl, which is essentially the hood, if you're a car person, or the bonnet, on -hmm. the front of the aircraft that goes over the engine- one of these was found that had a serial number that aligned with a range of serial numbers that would have corresponded to the production of Frederick Valentich's aircraft. But here's yeah. the thing about this. There's a lot of things to consider here. This cowl was found off the coast, the uh, west coast of Flinders Island, which is uh, something like, I don't know, two or I think over 200, maybe 300 miles from mm-hmm. where Valentich was thought to go down between King Island and Cape Otway. It's a long way away. And I know I mentioned this in part one, that the bottom was relatively flat in the Bass Strait. That's not entirely true. There's coral reefs. There's all kinds of stuff. So it's not like it's a a roller rink. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of thinking, how in the world could this piece of aluminum, quote, and then quotes, and you're going to hear this term, walk across the bottom of the ocean, even in the course of five years, all that distance? It doesn't float. Um, and the depth is 200 feet, and there's going to be obstacles along the way. So I want to read this report about the idea of this cow moving all this distance and winding up on the coast at Flinders Island, several hundred miles away from where Valentich went down, even if the serial numbers fall into the category. Mm -hmm. The letter that precipitated that came from the head investigator, J.C. Sandercock. It's dated July 6, 1983. Recently, a piece of an aircraft was found washed ashore on the west coast of Flinders Island, Tasmania. It was found on the beach at Perry's Bay, opposite the northern end of Flinders Island Aerodrome, which is the airport. The date of finding was May 15, 1983, and there is reason to believe the piece had not been on the beach more than a few days. The part has been identified as having come from a Cessna 182 aircraft between a certain range of serial numbers. The part is an engine cowl flap for the control of airflow over the engine. It is 300 millimeters long. They go on to describe it, side panels, et cetera, et cetera. The operating bolt of steel, while heavily corroded, appears to have failed on impact or in flight, meaning not by corrosion. They go on to mention how Valentich's plane disappeared. They're wondering if this could be part of that plane and add, from previous knowledge of aircraft parts walking in quotes across the floor of tidal lakes and rivers, it is wondered if such a piece as described could travel from an area between Cape Otway and the northern tip of King Island, or from a position near the described area under the influence of ocean currents. While it is not unknown for the cow flap to separate from the aircraft in flight, to our knowledge, there have been no recent cases in the Victoria-Tasmania area, and no wreckage of aircraft have been dumped at sea to our knowledge nor are other Cessna aircraft missing in the waters of Bass Strait. Any information you could pass concerning the likelihood of this particular item being able to travel over a period of close to five years would be a step towards solving the mystery of the disappearance of this aircraft and its sole occupant and aid to its location. Please do not hesitate to call to discuss the matter. Attach, please find a map showing the area of finding and two photographs of the item. So that was the letter that they wrote trying to figure out if this piece could have walked across the bottom of the Bass Strait. So in response to this request from the chief investigator, J.C. Sandercock, the RAND Research Laboratory, which is the Royal Australian Navy, wrote the following. 
I refer to your letter dated 6 July 1983, where you discuss aircraft parts washed ashore on Flinders Island. Examination of our records of near-bottom currents at the Kingfish B site showed unusually large currents on Julian Day 81, 1983. Uh, in this case, Julian Day, I believe, means reference to the first day of the year, 81 days into the year. This resulted from a storm, and again on Julian Day 96. The bottom currents on day 96 exceeded 0.5 meters per second when the flow was in an easterly direction. Such large currents constitute an unusual event. Our results are stored as 17-minute averages, and only 2 in 1,000 exceed 0.5 meters per second. Thus, it seems reasonable to speculate that the storm on day 96 induced large bottom currents over much of the eastern Bass Strait and moved your aircraft parts towards Flinders Island. More usual currents could then have completed the process of washing the components ashore. So, what they're saying here is that it's possible. Yeah, but I did math on this, and I don't trust it, so mm -hmm. I don't want to fully quote it here. Actually, I, I, I guess I'll say this. <laughs> Here's what they're saying. They're saying that this piece could have walked along the floor of the ocean... And I don't know if they have stoplights and intersections down there. What do you do when you get to <laughs> no, coral? Is there yes. any junk in this way? Right. At 0.5 meters per second during these two storms. Now, they don't say how long the storms lasted, but I, I did do the math. And if the storms were, let's say, nine days long, which is ridiculous. There's no storm that mm -hmm. long. But if they could, then the current could have moved this cowl from Cape Otway to Flinders Island. If you had nine days of 0.5 meters per second. But they already said it was like two in a thousand times that they had a current that strong. Yeah. Moreover, what they're saying is that two storms could have done the bulk of the moving combined with the average current over the five years, which they don't mention. And it's feasible that as a result, this cow could have gone 200 miles or 321 kilometers. Hmm. So here's the thing, though. This still seems like a stretch to me because when I look on Google Earth at this whole area, which I love looking at, and there's a lot of great mm -hmm. detail here. Google Earth shows the ocean floor, as I've mentioned, as being relatively flat with an average depth of about 200 feet. But no matter how flat the bottom is, it's hard for me to imagine this bit of flat aluminum not getting hung up on a journey like that or there being enough current to push it along the bottom, winding up all the way up on a beach at this other island. And here's the other thing about Flinders Island. The beach where it was found was right next to the airport on Flinders Island. Runway 23, you can see it right there on Google Earth, just goes right out over the coast, pretty much where they found this. So mm. I don't understand why you would think that this piece on the beach at almost the end of the runway for an airport <laughs> right. came 200 miles from a missing plane all the way on the other yeah. side of the Bass Strait bike walking, and I'm doing Chris Farley air quotes, walking across <laughs> the bottom of the ocean. That's twice tonight. Yes. Yeah. Valintage was nowhere near Flinders Island. So right. what is conceivable to me is that the cowl fell off a different aircraft that didn't crash as a result, because mm -hmm. that did happen, mm -hmm. and it may have not even been reported. Well, one thing that I found, there, there's a podcast and a blog called Melbourne Marvels. And if you go to melbournemarvels.com and it's spelled the way that I learned how to pronounce Melbourne, <laughs> M-E-L-B-I-N, M-A-R-V-E-L-S.com. You'll see there's a website with uh, blog entries and a podcaster and uh, blogger named Eamon Gunning who talks about and researches the kind of stuff that we do, but just specifically related to Melbourne. And I want to yeah. take this quote from his website regarding this cowl. There had been two other known events when Cessna aircraft taking off from Flinders Island Airport had lost the same piece of engine cow flap. 
Given that this piece was found so close to the runway, it is believed to be more likely to have come from one of these planes. Modern scientific analysis would be capable of determining whether the piece had been in saltwater for five years, but unfortunately, the debris in question has been lost by the Department of Aviation and so is unavailable for testing. Ah, yeah. Thank you, Mr. Gunning, even though you didn't give me permission to read that paragraph. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he's fine. It's the code of podcasters. It's the code of podcasters. Yeah, yeah go check out yeah. his podcast, Melbourne Marvels, and uh, we'll, we'll have a link to it in the show notes and a link to where we got this from. But uh, he has obviously talked about Valentich. You're not going to be there yeah. doing a show yeah. and stuff like this without doing that. So pretty interesting stuff. Of course, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask Chris about this and what his take was on the whole cow. So let's go to that now. Well, all right. I want to ask you one more question pertaining to the in- incident itself. Please. This question is about the cow that turned up on Flinders Island. And yep. I know that people are pointing that to as, you know, it falls in line with the serial numbers for the production range on hit on the 182 that he was flying. But in the report, because I know you've seen the report as well, in the mm. report, there's this whole analysis with these folks at the lab, the government lab, suggesting that this cow could have walked across the bottom of the ocean. You know, we do miles here. What is it? 300 miles? I can't remember how many kilometers it is. A long way. Be about 450 kilometers. 450 kilometers over the course of five Mm. years, primarily based on two really big storms that arrived and may have done most of the work and the rest of the time it crawling. Now, we're obviously not oceanographers. It looks like from Google Earth that the seafloor for the Bass Strait is Mm. relatively flat really not particularly mountainous or anything like that and a a consistent depth of around 200 feet. So they were suggesting that this piece could have, and they put this term, walked across the bottom of the ocean to Flinders Island. Mm. Over the course of all that time, maybe these two storms were moving it at half a meter per second during the storms. But it just seems crazy to me that that piece could go that far and there's no definite connection to his plane. And on top of that, the thing that bothers me the most about it is that it was right off the coast of the airport at Flinders, like right off the, if you're taking yeah. off from there and there's a known thing with these cows coming off the planes, not common, come off. but it happens. Yeah, they it do. just seems to me like that came off a different plane and <laughs> fell onto the beach or near the, or just near enough the beach to wash back up on the beach from the airport at Flinders, which he was nowhere near anyway. And it's just an unreported problem that somebody had with their aircraft. My personal theory is that an octopus uses it as a hat. And from, <laughs> uh, nice. hat. That's a uh, good point, look, actually. I, that's a valid point, though. <laughs> uh, like some biological uh, interference. That's actually... To me, it's uh, neither here nor there. Yeah. It's interesting. It's not a complete serial number. It just means that it's from this, the series, as you say. It's the series of planes that were built. And more than five of those were built. And these cows do actually come off. We know that. More more than one of these planes have crashed. Yeah. They do get um, decommissioned and, and, uh, you know, disposed of as well. So, yeah, and I agree. Because of its proximity to the airport, once again, it's one of these things where is it really likely that it's been walked across the bottom of the ocean and just happens to hit this suspicious spot? Or is it more likely it just came off a plane? Right. Yeah. We're reaching for explanations because we don't like the possibility of an alternative explanation rather than going, you know what? It may, maybe it's from his plane, but it doesn't seem likely. likely. And it's not going to float. And it's pretty flat, too. That's the other thing. I don't see the current catching it. 
It's not like it has no. a really dynamic surface. Well, after all that, I think I tend to agree with you, Scott. You made a pretty good argument about the likelihood of that cowl ending up where it did. And it's kind of what we say about everything else. Nothing is impossible. I think it's possible it weirdly could have traveled that distance uh, because there are strange hydrologic actions all over the planet here that cause strange things to happen. But how likely is it? And when you look at that question, I don't think it's that likely. And one thing you and I have found out covering several aviation mysteries now and the associated wreckage is that there is airplane junk all over the place. Yeah, that's the truth. All over this world because planes have traveled all over the Earth. It's like that uh, hatch, that piece of the hatch, outer ring, I believe, that ended up on Nicomaroro, which may fit an Electra. I think some of the numbers matched up right for the production run. I don't know. I'm incredulous about that piece and the whole <laughs> well, Nicomaroro well, thing, as you know. But. I know. Well, I'm, I'm right there with you. But that's my point, too, is that you find this uh, outer lip of a hatch and then you immediately leap to it being Amelia's plane, her Electra. It's like, I hold on a second there. Not so fast. It's more than likely just other airplane junk. So for me, you need a lot more than that. Well, we've come to that point in this investigation where it's time to talk about the body of water with this, where this all took place, which is the Bass Strait. And there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. What do you think about this, Forrest? Well, I don't know about you, Scott, but I, I love strange and unusual geographic and oceanographic features like Lake Baikal, where it's a, a rift lake that is so unimaginably deep four and a half miles of just silt, not including the water. And I love these marginal places on the earth. And, and not that it's that marginal here, but I believe, you know, of course, I'm not an oceanographer or geologist or geographer, but between the two land masses, the very large landmass of Australia and the heart-shaped Tasmania, between those two, I believe because of the proximity and the way it's set up can cause a lot of just bad weather and high chop and winds and treacherous transportation. Not that we're looking at that here with the Valentich case, but metaphorically, it might be like a, you know, between the Scylla and Carbidus scenario where between the two, you can have some things go wrong in the middle. And it's the old proverbial between a rock and a hard place. Well, and there's a, there's a lot going on here. I mean, in addition to that, at that latitude, you're in a, an area called the Westerlies. You've got that going on. Right. It's the 40 degree latitude. And then on top of the other parts that you're mentioning, there's also the idea of well-traveled routes. And once Tasmania was discovered, what people are doing is going back and forth, north to south, over and over and over again across the Bass Strait. And in addition to that, the Bass Strait is the route of choice for cargo coming from the east coast around to the west coast of Australia and vice versa. You can go around the northern end too, but mm -hmm. the route of choice is the southern end, which takes you right through there. So there's a lot of traffic going on. And, you know, we always talk right. about that, that the idea that a traveled area has more activity. Well, the first thing we're going to do here is talk to Christopher a little bit about it since he lives right there. And then after that, we're going to get into a little bit of discussion about some of the other strange things that have happened there. Australia, to our view, is a wondrous, mysterious place with a lot of mm. dangers and a lot of beauty and a lot of uh, different things going on. Have you been to Tasmania? Have you crossed the Bass Strait yourself? I have, yeah, a few times. Um, and Tasmania is just absolutely beautiful it's this weird place that's sort of semi 
it's like going to the island. It's like going to the UK. Like all the structures are bluestone. There's huge, beautiful green rolling fields and like a million sheep and cows and things like this. And it's it's just lovely. Um, but yeah, crossing Bass Strait. Uh, well, if you do it by plane, as I have a few times, it's literally an hour to get from Melbourne to Tasmania. So you know, if you if you mm -hmm. get up from the plane, as they take off and go to the bathroom and sit down, you basically that's the flight. But uh, going over water is more interesting because Bass Strait, it's a big, vast expanse of sea. Lots of things have happened there. And I think like any large stretch of water that's a little bit treacherous, you get lots and lots of stories about what happened and what might happen there. Do Australians consider uh, Bass Strait a little bit like your own uh, Bermuda Triangle? I wouldn't go that far. I'd say it's a bit more like Loch Ness without a monster. It's sort of like <laughs> this weird... Yeah. Oh, you don't want to go there. You don't want to, you don't want to head to Bass Strait. You never know what might happen. Oh, geez. Have you been to King Island? I've never personally been to King Island. King Island is tiny. King Island is 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 uh it's a tiny, tiny place. I've eaten a lot of food from there. They do amazing cheese and amazing <laughs> beef. Nice. King Island beef is great. There's King Island dairy, which is famously great. But yeah, it's technically part of Tasmania. It's not actually part of Victoria. But isn't there I, an amusement park there? I saw that there was this big amusement park there. Is it not big? <laughs> it's not. A, <laughs> not right. a big amusement park would take up the island. Yeah. Wow. Right, right, right. Are any spots within uh, like, like King Island or Cape Otway known for just uh, a day trip? Yeah, if you've got a single engine plane or if you've got a, a pleasure craft or something like that. It's a good place to go because there's not a huge amount. So you might go to, say, Phillip Island or you might go to King Island or you might go, if you want to head back up towards New South Wales, you might go to Echuca or something like that. But, yeah, they, these are places where if you're a pilot and you just want to practice things, if you just want to go places to get your flight time up, this is the other thing. Volantich might have just been wanting to get his flight time up. He might not have really had any idea. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. And like, he might have said, I will want to get some crayfish. Do you guys have crayfish, by the way? <laughs> no, we have. It's kind of an unambitious lobster. Yeah, that's what I was. I was like, is this a lobster? I was like, I was concerned that I would be confusing for our audience. So I was like, we're going to just call it lobster. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's basically a lobster without the big claws. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Here in the in the States, we have uh, crayfish or crawfish, uh, depending on uh, how you pronounce it regionally. And, uh, you know, we, we also known as crawdads, uh, but they're mm. tiny and, and uh, they can be mm. found in rivers and streams as well. And so, uh, like in Louisiana, you'll have a big uh, uh, boil up of a lot of them because, of course, you have to eat a, a ton of them to get a meal. Yeah. No. They're more like shrimp, freshwater shrimp or something. So, but these yeah. are larger, like a lobster. Yeah, they're big. Yeah, the size of a lobster. And they're freshwater or saltwater? Saltwater. Okay. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're the size of a lobster, but they have a big tail. And so okay. you, you just snap off the tail and you grab some lemon mm -hmm. and you have a crayfish. Yeah. And they're great. Scott, do you like lobster? I love lobster. <laughs> okay. I do. Yeah, I mean, I'm not obsessed with it. You know, some people yeah. are like obsessed with getting lobster. I'm a little Yo, bit more yeah. of a steak guy, which I'm trying to wean myself off of that. It's not politically <laughs> correct anymore, but man, do I love a good steak. Um, uh, I don't eat it yeah, that much, so, though, uh, to be honest. All those rich, uh, fancy meals. I love uh, Alaskan king crab legs split yes. down the middle. They're, they're the size of small baseball bats. 
Yeah, it's all really good. These You're killing me. I'm on a stuff. diet right now and quarantined. <laughs> I haven't sorry. had any of that stuff in a long time, so. <laughs> I will just lay off the butter. But uh, no, it sounds delicious. You put a little lemon on it. That's what he was talking about. Yeah. And the reason I'm making that point is that it's worth a trip possibly for Frederick yeah. to go grab these. Especially if he's picking it up for the boss, maybe. You know? yeah, or not the boss, it's, but his, uh, the squadron commander that he's trying to impress, so. Yeah, it's a treat. He's not just going to get a, a tilapia fillet. Right. <laughs> what about other strangeness, though, that happens in the Bass Strait? Well, you know what? I didn't know a whole lot about the other strangeness in this region, but I figured there must be somehow. And then you delighted me by saying like, oh yeah, there's other strangeness. Well, yeah, there is. And I, I want to give a shout out to uh, Dave and the Astonishing Research Corps and uh, the other folks in there who helped dig some of this stuff up and test as well, of course, for mm -hmm. wrangling that whole thing. We haven't given them a shout out in too long a time. But uh, they came across some interesting stuff with other incidents there. And I thought it was interesting what Christopher said, too, about, well, it's like the Loch Ness Monster without the monster. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> there's things happening, but it's not quite enough to even say the Bermuda Triangle. Of course, now people are like, well, you know, it's a normal amount of stuff going missing. But <laughs> that is a good point, because I believe that, too. It's the law of averages, in a sense. Yeah, there's a lot of traffic. Yeah, when you have a lot of traffic, stuff's going to happen. And yeah. just uh, peripherally, and because it's human, and, and by our nature, interacting with a a sometimes unpredictable earth, weird things are going to happen. And I believe that's part of it. But also along with that, that doesn't rule out everything. And I don't believe that everything is explainable in a mundane fashion. And I believe, yeah, it's going to happen here if it's going to happen anywhere. Yeah. And some of these stories are, uh, they're still a little weird. And so I'm going to yeah. share someone with you. This is a mixture of stuff that the Astonishing Research Corps dug up, uh, that we dug up, and that also comes off the Wikipedia page called the Bass Strait Triangle, which... It didn't really start to be called until after Frederick's plane disappeared. Hmm. But the, what you're going to find out here as we get through part two is that there's other incidents in the area, not even just the Strait, but we're going to hear about something in New Zealand, that they are strange incidents. There's a lot of activity here, but it's not necessarily centered in the Strait. But let's talk about the Strait for now. For one thing, as I said earlier, it's a route of choice for ships going from the West Coast to the East Coast or East to West Coast of Australia. And on top of that, most of the air traffic between Tasmania and the mainland of Australia flies over or next to the Bass Strait. I'm going to share something here. This is a direct quote from Wikipedia. Hundreds of vessels from small yachts and fishing craft up to the size of bulk carriers have come to grief in Bass Strait. Running aground on the coastline, hitting reefs or on river bars while entering port or foundering due to stress of weather, some dozens being lost without a trace. Yeah, here's some examples. The British warship, uh, this is one of the more famous ones, HMS Sappho in 1858, in which well over 100 lives were lost and no positively identifiable wreckage ever located. In 1906, the SS Ferdinand Fischer, a German cargo ship, disappeared. Uh, the SS Amelia J, a schooner, disappeared on the 10th of September uh, that same year, I think. The HMAS Swordsman was commissioned to search for that ship, and while searching the Bass Strait, a second ship, the Barkentine SS Southern Cross, disappeared. Double mystery. Yes. In yeah. addition to that, a military Airco DH, which would probably be a de Havilland 9A, engaged in the search also disappeared, which we've seen <laughs> this, this before. Flight 19. Yeah, they, all the people in the search the, are now yeah. vanishing. The Martin Marauder. Yes, exactly. Now, eventually the wreckage of the SS Southern Cross was found on King Island. The SS Amelia J, however, was never discovered and hasn't been to this day, and neither was the de Havilland 9. 
So that's kind of weird, you know, when all that stuff happens, like you said, Flight 19. And here's from a Listverse list, which had stuff on it that we've mostly already talked about, but I thought this was an interesting piece from that. This is uh, truly bizarre incidents from the Bass Strait Triangle on this, and it's, uh, this turned up in the Astonishing Research Corps again. This was written by Marcus Loth, L-O-W-T-H, and published on February 11th of 2018. I thought this was pretty intriguing. That's why I left this one in here. In 1944, Uh a strange dark shadow came out of nowhere and flew beside a Bristol Beaufort bomber for almost 20 minutes over the Bass Strait. Then, without warning, it shot upward at an amazing pace and vanished. Two years earlier, in 1942, an Australian fighter pilot took his plane over the Bass Strait after orders to investigate reports of strange lights made by fishermen. As he surveyed the area, a huge bronze disc came out of the clouds and settled alongside the plane for several moments before vanishing as quickly as it had appeared. Mm. So the Wikipedia page goes on to mention a bunch of World War II training missions that were lost, but that has been chalked up to inexperience and common factors that led those uh, same pilots to crash on the ground as well. It was sort of Mm -hmm. typical of those type of operations. Then, of course, in 1978, we have Valentich's disappearance. And after that, here's another one off the list first list, which I thought was interesting. It says, whether there is a connection or not is unclear, but in the immediate weeks before and following the Frederick Valentich encounter, a wave of strange sightings broke out across the coastlines of Tasmania and Victoria. Mm -hmm. For example, on October 9th, a husband and wife witnessed a bright light above them that actually came down to the level of their car, maintaining pace beside them as they drove. Exactly a month later in Hobart, a taxi driver was suddenly forced to slam on his brakes due to a strange green glow in the middle of the road. Ah, another green Another green uh, light, light, green glow. Yep. His communication radio also went out, just like Valentich. By the time right. he had returned his gaze to the road, the green object was nowhere to be seen. And then on November 25th in Sanford, a woman reported a doorway of light suddenly mm. appearing in front of her property. Perhaps even stranger... And that's why I left this one in here. I knew you would like this for us. Yeah. She could see through the doorway to her driveway on the other side. Ooh. And that, yeah. the list first goes on to say, this last account, as crazy as it sounds, is very similar to both ancient texts and other contemporary accounts that speak of portals or gateways to other dimensions. Wait, who wrote this article now? This What's is list first. This is the one okay. that I already cited. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, they're on to something that was described by... Some of the ancients, I believe, in the American Southwest, where you progress into a portal that uh, people have reported seeing a different landscape on the other side. Yeah. Wasn't that reported in the Skinwalker Ranch case that a patch had opened up in the sky on a cloudy day and people could see blue sky on the other side? Yeah, I do seem to remember something about that. Yeah, There's something like that. Yeah, you're looking at a portal. It's also very reminiscent of the Nazi bell. Uh, Apparently over, while it was operating over the top of it, you could see kind of a, it just sounds such like a scene from a sci-fi movie where you see this cloud, this optical effect in a movie open up and you could see scenes of other times and places. Yeah. That it was almost like a chronovisor. Yeah. We're going to cover the chronovisor one day. Yeah. Uh, that popped up very recently into uh, some other time travel uh, stuff I was looking at uh, with Project Pegasus, suggested to us by listeners, of course. But yeah, it, there's uh, all kinds of crazy stuff that happens here. And I think what we're learning from Chris is that, well, it's known for that. The attitude is that it does happen around here. We don't talk about it constantly. We don't 
We don't go on and on about it, but we do acknowledge it here. And uh, maybe no more than other mystical places, like we said, the, the American Southwest or the Midlands in England around uh, Wiltshire, where there seem to be hotspots of strange activity. This comes down to one of the final ones, which is going to lead to one of my book recommendations. I haven't gotten to make one of these in a while. This has to do with mm -hmm. the yacht, the Charleston, which disappeared in 1979 while sailing to Sydney to join the Sydney Hobart Yacht Race. Now, you may never have heard of this, and it's certainly not something that I can afford to participate in or even watch, mm. but this mm. is a famous, famous race. And one of the reasons it's so famous is how completely treacherous it is. And the route takes you along the very eastern end of the Bass Strait down to Hobart, which is in Tasmania from Sydney. So you, you're coming down across what they call the Westerlies, which cuts through. So you're sailing across the end of the Bass Strait between there mm -hmm. and New Zealand. I'm just going to read, and this is again from the List Verse article about the Charleston. In December 1979, the yacht Charleston, along with the five crew members, would vanish without a trace while sailing along the Bass Strait. The yacht was scheduled to arrive in Sydney for New Year's Eve. However, after several days with no contact and no arrival, search planes were sent out in a desperate bid to find the apparently stricken vessel. Nothing of the boat or the people on board was ever discovered. There are plenty of theories as to what might have happened, though. Some suggested that due to an increase in wind around the time the ship disappeared, it was possible that damage could have been inflicted upon the mast, or perhaps a loose container from the many ships passing through the area had damaged the rudder. If this was the case, it's possible that the yacht could have drifted as far as islands to the south of New Zealand. Interestingly, in their absolute desperation for information, family members of the crew even visited a clairvoyant who stated that the crew had come upon an island south of their last known location. The yacht's fate, however, is still a mystery to this day. This part of this really stood out to me because I read a book a while back called Fatal Storm about this hurricane in 1998 that just devastated this race. And the book has all the stories of all the sailors who had problems in it. I'll read an excerpt from this article. This is from SF Gate, as in San Francisco. It's written by Kevin Fagan on January 20th, 1999. Just a little excerpt from it. Six sailors died in the hurricane that savaged 155 sailboats that took off from Sydney on December 26th for the annual 720-mile race to the Tasmanian capital of Hobart. Only 43 yachts out of 155 managed to mm. finish, struggling through waves towering as high as three-story buildings amid 100-mile-per-hour winds. The Australian Armed Services had to fish 55 people out of the sea in the biggest rescue operation in the country's history. Only the 1979 Fastnet race in the treacherous Irish Sea claimed more lives, 15, in the history of yacht racing. So uh, Larry Ellison was racing in that race, and he's one of the yeah, guys yeah. in the book, uh, you know, the, the CEO of Oracle. He's one of the guys in the book that it talks about. But it's really fascinating because you see uh, there's just different stories from all these different boats and people being rescued and other an, another guy. One of the things that I remember about the book that was really compelling to me was the guy was they were offering to come get him. His sailboat was completely dismasted and rudderless, but he knew it wouldn't sink. It was unsinkable, as they say. Some boats, <laughs> they call them that. Not like the Titanic, mm -hmm. but more in a way that it's like a sealed hull and there's foam inside of it. And you just like know- Like a Boston whaler? Yeah, like a Boston whaler. You just know it's okay. not going to sink. And even though it was rolling over and over and over in the waves with no sail on it, and he was getting beat up and breaking his arm and stuff like that, he was like, no, mm. I don't want to put the rescuers at risk. But other people were plucked off of the boats around there. And I think maybe somebody was plucked off of his as well. And he's like, no, go. I'm going to stay with the boat. Wow. And he rode the storm out. And sure enough, it didn't sink. And he was okay. Mm. 
And so that was his philosophy. But anyway, so you got, anyway, you can check out that book. It's pretty fascinating. But the point about all this is that water is treacherous. And whatever happened mm -hmm. to the Charleston, I don't think that's paranormal. I think that is yeah. just being on a sailboat in the ocean. And it's dangerous. It's the bottom yeah. line. You have to be really, really good at it. And sometimes that doesn't matter because if Poseidon wants to take you to Davy Jones' locker, that's where you're going. So. <laughs> well, you're, you're talking like an old seafarer <laughs> mate now, yeah, son, yeah. sonny so, boy. <laughs> what, what year was that? The storm was in at the end of 1998. Okay, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. No, I, yeah. it's all coming together now. I, I remember a very treacherous that's, race. That's, yeah, that's right down there and, in this uh, area that we're yeah. talking about. Yeah. So. I See, that's the thing. I, I definitely remember the stories, the news stories coming out of there. and the tragedy, but I, you know, didn't have any context for being at that place. Yeah. Yeah. And now, you know, now we're putting it all together, right? And that's why we do the show just for our own edification. So we can learn things. And I can talk like a pirate at old sea matey. <laughs> and it's Scott, you, you must be barfing up the oyster crackers. Oh my God. Sorry. Uh, don't, don't, sorry, cut that. <laughs> no, don't cut wait, it. Wait. Please. I beg you leave it, Sarah. <laughs> well, one of the things that we're going to talk about here coming up are some of the reasons that people think Valentich might have gone down that are not UFO related. Some ah. of these ideas that he was uh, suicidal or that there was what they call a death spiral, which is a long, slow thing. I think there was a supposition that this is what happened with JFK Jr. And forgive us pilots out there that are listening. I know you're yeah. out there. You, um, but I believe that what happens in these conditions, especially if it's foggy or you have a, a problem seeing the horizon, is that you're slightly banked. So you're flying in a very, very gentle circle and also descending and not really realizing it. And by the time you do realize it, you've hit the water or the land or whatever in the, in the case of that sort of spiral situation. However, as we know with Valentich, it was clear. Yes, he wasn't that experienced, but it was clear and it wasn't even dark yet. So that's something that we're going to talk about. Uh, we're also going to talk about this idea of flying upside down. So let's get to this part of Chris's interview. By our calculations, it wasn't necessarily dark at this point. Wasn't sunset super late? It's not. There was obviously, we know there was a Skeptical Inquirer article yeah. a few years ago, which I had read. I was actually a subscriber to Skeptical Inquirer at the uh -huh. time when it came out. It basically says, look, Volantage, case closed. We've worked it out. We understand what happened. Uh, he mistook Venus and the moon for this thing or the moon for this thing. And he went into a death spiral and he fell into the water because it was dark. And that happens to pilots sometimes. And that's the end of the story. Right. I'm probably not doing it justice. Please go and read it. I mean, we have uh, looked at it, and that was the crux mm. of it. And the, the first thing I yeah. thought was, like, I don't think it was dark. but It's not dark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this is the problem. So he sets off about an hour before sunset. His final transmission is six minutes before last line. Okay. So it is not dark when he radios the tower. It is getting dark. But I find it, I mean, I always have a problem with this theory about, you know, mistaking planets for UFOs anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It always strikes me as not likely. I don't actually know anyone who's done it. I don't think I've, you know, like I'm interested in astronomy. I'm out at night looking at stars and things like that. I've never looked at a planet and gone, is that a UFO? Or right. is that something else? Or is that a satellite? I've, you know, it, it, and one would think, especially a pilot, would not make this error. That in itself makes me suspicious about the whole thing. But then, yeah, it's not dark. It's not dark enough um, that you have the circumstances where you could mistake a planet for a light that's close to you, in my opinion. And so here's my question then. When when you, like in the report that it was saying that, oh, right, last light was 1800 
or sunset was 1854 hours. Is that right? K pot way. Yeah. 1854. Okay. So 654. Mm. Oh, right, right, right. So it was about an hour before. And then, yeah. and then it says 1918 hours. So that's when it gets mm. completely dark, I guess. Um, that's right. And his last transmission was 1800 and uh, what, 12 minutes or something in that area, right? Yeah. Okay. It's getting dark. The sun is setting. But it's not dark. Right. Yeah, and that's another uh, thing that Scott and I noticed. When you think about it logically, if it's e even before twilight, rarely I can remember maybe seeing one of the planets uh, as a faint dot. Uh, but there's several things about, yeah, I'm on, totally on board with the uh, mistaking Venus uh, angle on that and that if you do see a bright dot, it's slightly larger than a regular star, you could say, and it's steady, but it doesn't move. And it's not that big. It's still essentially a pinpoint in the sky. And do we know if he's, as an aviator, uh, a student aviator, studied any celestial navigation? It was much more common in the 1970s to study celestial navigation. And it's likely when he was doing private study and the study with his um, uh, military tutor that it was covered. But we don't have any evidence to say whether he did or he didn't. So the answer is I don't know, but I would say it's much more likely that he would have because yeah. in the 70s, we just didn't have the instrumentation that we have today. Right. It's not likely you would study celestial navigation unless you're doing an advanced course today. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, especially after yeah. as much research as we've done with the Amelia Earhart case and how it was a very prevalent thing, especially back then, uh, pre-instrumentation uh, that we have now. And then the other thing is if it's still light out, that's my big point, is that I'm not sure Venus or any of the other planets would have been visible at all. I mean, you get very clear nights down here. And so if you're flying and it's not very cloudy, it can be quite close to sunset and you can see some stars, especially so if you're, you've got the sun on one side and you've got, say, it's the right conditions and you've got, uh, say, Saturn or Jupiter on one side, then you can probably see them, but not in any way that you would go, oh, my God, what's that? You'd go, oh, small pinpricks of light. Right. It, it's certainly mm -hmm. nothing. He described to the tower there with four very bright landing lights at first. I don't see it. No, I just don't see it. Okay. I mean, I'm sure you guys have, have heard the theory about that he was flying upside down yes. and the moon was reflecting off the water and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. to me, that's one of the most ridiculous things ever. But I mean, the reason, obviously, uh, first and foremost, is that his particular Cessna had a gravity-fed engine. Right. So uh, I had a friend who flew light aircraft and uh, would actually fly out of Moravan Airport. And I did ask him, first of all, I wanted to know, is it possible to fly upside down and not know you're flying upside down? And his considered opinion was no. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Most of all, because you often have loose things in the cockpit, like you had, right. like, particularly in those days, you'd have a clipboard or something like that. And anything that obviously gravity still works in a plane. And so that would not be ideal. You obviously noticed that something was going on, and especially if you're doing it for a concerted amount of time, like it wasn't just a barrel roll or something. And then when we talked, discussed the case more, he was like, well, that's, that's a lot of Cessnas, particularly early ones, had gravity-fed fuel injection. Mm -hmm. And so they don't last more than five to 10 seconds without spluttering out if they're upside down. Right. They can't. Right. And so his opinion was, no, it's uh, not a thing. It's just impossible to be flying upside down, not know you're flying upside down, mistake the moon for a UFO, and then fly continuously for 
at least six minutes, you know. Yeah. And then not have your engine, you're having your engine only cough out towards the end of that six minutes. Right, right. Yeah, that to us, uh, uh, just from a common sense point, didn't make sense. As we uh, talked about a little in part one, if you are flying in a loop, as you just mentioned, Chris, Mm. gravity does still apply because I've seen videos of a guy actually pouring water Mm. from a pitcher into a glass, but he's doing a loop. And so, mm. uh, as people will, may understand, it's like that trick where you have a a, a wire uh, with a, a J hook on the end, and you can swing a penny around, or if you swing a bucket of water around mm. in a circle with your arm, the water will stay in the bucket. Centrifugal force. Yeah. So that is mm. the, the force of gravity keeping that in. And if he was doing that, maybe he wouldn't have noticed. But uh, from all accounts, he was not doing a loop. No. At any period of time, you feel in your own body the blood rushing to your head. And look, you can get disorientated, and it's not impossible. But the problem is you're stacking coincidences. And this is one of the things where I, I guess where I leave the skeptics, where it's like, well, if you stack coincidences and you're proposing things that are just as unlikely as seeing an unidentified object, if you take away the connotations of aliens and whatever, and I'm not certainly not stating it was aliens or what, I have no clue what it might have been. But if you take away... If you just say, well, he saw a weird object, surely that's more likely than these weird explanations where he's doing this weird barrel roll that keeps everything, you know, centrifugally locked and, you know, his engine's fine for X amount of time and he doesn't realise that this is happening. It just doesn't seem likely. Yeah, again, those theories, I don't care what the professional sceptics are saying on the Wikipedia page and they seem to be running all of them on paranormal stuff Mm. these days. Just Mm. everything is just like, nope, didn't happen. Next, case closed, mystery <laughs> solved. I just don't see it. I don't see the spiral in this case, and I don't see the flying upside down, not just for the idea that, okay, it was clear. He didn't have a ton of flying hours, but it's like Christopher says, gravity, or maybe you said this, gravity doesn't stop working in the plane when it's upside down. And the plane also has a gravity-fed engine. And we did talk to somebody, uh, a friend of the show, a friend of Tess's actually, who is a pilot, and he said, look, there's things you can do to modify these engines so that, of course, right. they'll do that. Like trick planes, they fly at all different kinds of attitudes, of course. But that's not what's happening with this rental plane at Southern Air Services. This aircraft, if you flew it upside down, it's going to stall out. So after a few seconds. What her pilot friend said, and what we know, Scott, of course, with his old Jeep, which would conk out on an incline when we were trying to off-road, is that with fuel or oil at a uh, not, let's say, uh, totally level angles, your vehicle is not going to get the oil and the fuel it needs to keep running. If you run out of oil upside down, the engine's going to seize up after a while. Give me just a matter of minutes. If you don't get enough fuel pumping. It'll choke out sooner than that. It's going to stop. It'll choke yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. I remember one time he had the, he was all proud. He had his big CJ7 up on this hill, and I think it uh, it stalled out. Well, there's a 1979 right? 302V8, and that carburetor did not like to be at more than 30 yeah. degrees. It was a steep hill. So I, I do want to say that. I will grant you that. It didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it did not. <laughs> we tried to pull it up the hill uh, using his friend, but that was going to pull the other uh, FJ40 down on top of of it so we just pointed it downhill and wrote it uh, i think in neutral yes backwards right at backwards. a high rate of speed, bouncing around <laughs> very... not far from vasquez rocks where kirk fought the gorn but uh that's, yes. that's another story <laughs> that's true the point being though is that you're upside down you're gonna feel it it's not that gradual feeling where you don't notice it again as i will say flight 401 where it's so gradual not even these experienced pilots noticed Right. And they had no visual reference outside. It was totally pitch black at night. Next thing you know, you're 
50 feet off the ground and in serious trouble. And that's doesn't seem to be the case here. That seems to be upside down to me is vying for the most ridiculous explanation. It's more ridiculous than a UFO <laughs> in this situation. I mean, if you're in a loop and you're, you have centrifugal force that you can use to still do a parlor trick or a YouTube trick where you pour a drink in a plane that's going upside down, that's one thing. But right. that's not what you're doing in a Cessna 182. That's not what he's doing. He's not doing a, a loop. And yeah. it just doesn't make any sense. You're going to, no. you're upside down, your hair, everything inside the cabin is falling <laughs> on the ceiling. It's, you know, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. I, it's absurd, frankly. It, it's almost, uh, it makes it me is mad. absurd. We did want to talk to Chris a little bit about his take as a local on the, some of the character witnesses and the people that knew Frederick personally. And also we're going to talk a little bit about a supposed audio tape of the actual conversation the one that we did uh, a reenactment of, of the transcript between Valintich and Roby at uh, Flight Services Unit in Melbourne. You know, one of the other really interesting angles on this case was that it's not an isolated incident. From our research and uh, one of the blogs on Above Top Secret, mm. one of the uh, enthusiasts there had said there were uh, multitudes, uh, maybe even up to 50 reports of various mm. degrees and different things, of course, but some that actually coincide with the timing and the visual identification of what uh, Belenchich saw, and of course, reports afterwards. And I think at least 10 reports made to the RAAF. Yeah, exactly. Like, there was definitely a flap, as we, I guess, do, do you say flap? That's what we say, yes. We, and by <laughs> we, we still do. Collective okay. amateur <laughs> UFO researchers, we use the word flap all the time. Yes. So definitely a flap <laughs> in the area. And I think, as, as I said, this links to the Kaikoura sightings in New Zealand in a really interesting way. So yeah, uh, Mike Hodges, the mechanic who was the last person to talk to him, calls him anxious, perhaps a little bit of an anxious flyer, but serious, and who asked many technical questions, clearly was very interested in aviation and wanted to know about aviation and wanted to be a better pilot. Um, and even as he was uh, talking to him on the ground that night, he was asking technical questions, which doesn't sound to me like someone who's like in a suicidal frame of mind or someone who's about to disappear off into the sunset. And I know there were suggestions that he wanted to steal a Cessna or something like that. Yeah. Which I think with every year that passes seems less and less likely. Right. To me, the typification of people who are suicidal or in a bad frame of mind, generally they'll just be quiet. They don't want to engage. They won't want to keep up the normal social mores. They'll just be quiet about what's happening right. and just sort of, you know, ride off into the sunset. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It doesn't seem like he would be asking about things to improve his skill set if this was his last flight. Yeah. Most people say he was friendly, a bit of a larrikin, had a very Australian sense of humor, so he did practical jokes, made fun of authority, didn't take everything seriously, but serious when the occasion arose. Rhonda, his girlfriend, uh, Rhonda Ralston particularly, said that he was a very serious pilot. Uh, he would fly places. He, he flew her to Newcastle to meet her uncle. And she said she was supposed to be going with him that day. So in the 40th anniversary, Fufors had a meeting at Moorabbin Airport, which is the airport that he took off from. And uh, she had an interview there and said, yeah, she was supposed to be going with him. They'd obviously become engaged, but the ring was still on layby, so he hadn't actually given her the ring, but she said yes. 
He said that uh, he would be back that evening once she found out that she couldn't come with him. And she'd gotten dressed up and was ready to go out with him that evening. She slept in the clothes that she was going to go out in. And she rose early and heard on ABC radio that morning that he was not, uh, or there was a flyer missing across Bass Strait. And so she called Moravan Airport and said, hey, I think I know that guy. And like the person who answered the phone said, well, what's his name? Because we've had a lot of calls. Mm -hmm. And she's like, Frederick Volante. She's like, oh, okay. Yeah, you better get down here. Okay. So Guido, his dad. So people say Guido was a believer in UFOs. And it seemed to me from all the interviews I saw and read that he was kind of a believer post-factum. He may have had a passing interest in UFOs, but I think he just kind of wanted to believe that his son was still okay. Right. You know, if you hear the interviews, he's still like, you know, well, it's possible that, uh, you know, uh, uh, some kind of aircraft, people tell me it's possible that some kind of aircraft could have taken him. And it's like, okay, um, I don't want to dissuade you because it's incredibly sad. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it doesn't seem like he was a, a fervent believer. I think he was just sort of going, yeah, I hope my son's okay. <laughs> and, you know, he still held hope. Like, he died in 2000. He still held hope to, like, you know, the last few years that his son would come back or turn up or, you know, everything would be okay, as you would. Right. Like, that's, I think that's perfectly normal and natural. So he was an Italian immigrant. As I said, we had a lot of immigrants coming in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. And he lived in Avondale Heights, which is a lovely area, former dairy and apple sort of place. And, yeah, he he just seemed to just love his son and miss him terribly and didn't want anything bad to have happened to him. That was just my impression. That's the, always the impression I got when I heard him or, or, or listened to what he had to say. Yeah. Do you know if anyone had tried to... Uh after he passed, has tried to acquire the tape of the conversation or anything like that? You know, look, I haven't heard about it. I can't imagine that um, people would have just let that dog lie. Yeah. But I've never heard that uh, anyone recovered it, and maybe there was a search by the family. But at the same time, my feeling is like it's a cassette tape and it might not have been labelled. It might not have been labelled uh, in a way that made it obvious what it was. So it just would have been hard to find. Maybe it was in a box somewhere and we're still yet to find it. But no, right. we don't have it. It's with the PGF film somewhere. <laughs> yeah, Patterson film, yeah. It's like all these bits, they're out there somewhere. It might be a trash heap, but unless it's been destroyed purposefully, it exists somewhere. So until that happens, you never know. These things do turn up occasionally. Here's what's interesting about this. Forrest, you found that forum that had a whole discussion about the possible existence of the actual recording of Valentich's last conversation, right, that we've both been through now. Well, I did find it, but in a roundabout way. And also what we learned concurrently is that a listener of ours, Jim, sent us an email saying maybe there's a lead on this recording of the flight conversation, of, of the uh, the conversation between Valentich and flight advisor Steve Roby. And I was looking through one of the above top secret uh, forum links, and they also listed this link. So I went to this page here, which is another forum, and people were talking about it there, these pilots. And what was interesting is that one claimed to have at least a couple of minutes of the seven-minute conversation, but there was some discussion of whether or not that could actually be legally released to people. And uh, he had heard it, and he'd heard uh, it wasn't the entire thing. But the other thing I found interesting about it was that the pilots that were discussing it, who had some experience with the Royal Australian Air Force, was that it was kind of an initiation to hear this for young 
pilot cadets. Yeah, like a little hazing situation or something. Well, just, yeah, they'll freak them out because they, they do that. And, and we saw that as well with another thread about uh, some possible two uh, missing U.S. Navy jets and uh, that story being passed around to scare the young recruits. Yeah, this was in Puerto Rico. Yeah, yeah so that that's a very common trope here. But in this case, one poster said, yeah, yeah I think I have that. Uh, didn't know how to post it and was maybe a good thing because they were then kind of uncertain that maybe this isn't legal to listen to it. But people have heard it and certainly the noise part of it has been released. So that's out there. But yes, thank you to Jim for uh, pointing us to that thread. And uh, it was interesting to see experienced pilots discussing the case because it's like with everyone else, some people are saying, well, no, come on, we're all pilots. This is really interesting. And other people are saying, like, come on, it's poppycock. Stop with this nonsense. Yeah. But that's also the topic of the thread. So if you think it's nonsense, <laughs> go somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was it was interesting to see that that is out there. And, and that was my point in us talking about Chris. Somebody somewhere has it. You, always people are making copies and dubs secretly as stuff. It gets stashed in a drawer and it pops up later. But rarely does uh, anything get really nailed down to where, you know, it, it, it's in the Ark of the Covenant. And, uh, you know, there's only one copy. Yeah, man. The stories of these recordings are pretty fascinating. And it's interesting interesting how it's kind of like a hot potato. People have heard them, but uh, they don't exactly want to pass them around, which makes sense. I mean, if we had it ourselves, I don't think I'd want to publish it out of respect, but I still kind of want to hear it as an armchair investigator because I feel like it would inform, you know, the veracity of what we think happened here. It would be interesting to hear the actual intonation Mm -hmm. of the voices Mm -hmm. and everything. Well, there is a bit more evidence to get through next week, and a lot of it is pretty mind-blowing. Yeah, folks, you're not going to believe some of the stuff of the report that really backs up what Frederick Valentich was experiencing that October night back in 1978. That's going to wrap up part two of our series on the disappearance of Frederick Valentich. A very special thanks to Christopher Tyler for his appearance. We'll be back next week with part three. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Adam. I'm Ron Polakoff, galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Who's listening to you? (laughs) A-D-A-M. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. (laughs) 